It's often said that we need to adapt and overcome. But I suggest that we overcome and then adapt. Overcome the obstacles first, then learn to adapt from the experience to be more resilient. Hey folks, I am super stoked to announce that my new book, Staring Down the Wolf, is finally available in stores and online wherever books are sold. This is a true passion project that's taken me three years to get out the door. And it's about the seven leadership commitments that forge elite teams that are tapped into when you stare down your wolf fears and biases and emotional shadow. As many of you know, my goal is to influence 100 million people to become world-centric leaders by the year 2045. In order to do that, you need to tap into your full emotional power and intuitional strength by staring down the wolf. Thanks so much for being part of my journey. Staring down the wolf is a big part of that journey. Thanks for your support. Hoo-yah. Hi, welcome back to the Unbeatable Mind podcast. This is Mark Devine, your host. Thanks so much for being here. Super appreciate it. And today I have a solo cast. This is the conclusion to my book, Staring Down the Wolf, which was released in early March. If you participated in the pre-launch of the book, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was very helpful. Now, the book, for if this is your first time hearing about it, the subtitle is Seven Leadership Commitments That Forge Elite Teams. And it's essentially about how to build an elite team by getting out of your own way and building the power, unlocking the power and the raw potential of your team through these seven commitments of courage, trust, respect, growth, excellence, resiliency, and alignment. And I profile these commitments through some elite leaders from the SEAL teams and special operations community in action, as well as demonstrating from my own experience just how difficult it is to fully embody those commitments so you can show up as an authentic leader and bring out the best in your team. And so this is a conclusion to the book. The final commitment, stared on the fear of committing to a bigger mission. There's a kind of silence you can't hear indoors. No matter how thick your walls are, no matter how quiet your neighborhood, no matter how deep into the night you try to listen for it, the kind of silence I'm talking about is the silence of nature. If you ever spend extended periods of time in the wilderness, you've certainly experienced it. It's as if the world is pausing to take a breath. One of my favorite places to listen for this kind of silence is in the six million acre Adirondack Mountains of upstate New York. In the heat of the mid-afternoon when the sun is right overhead and the shadows of the maple and oak trees have shrunk down to almost nothing, there are moments of such stillness that if you listen hard enough, you can almost hear the blood running in your veins. I experienced that same silence when I deployed to Kenya for a special ops advisory mission and visited a big game reserve. I was struck by the expansiveness and beauty of our planet's open spaces, but saddened to learn how poaching and trophy hunting was destroying wildlife in Africa at an alarming rate. A few years later, I met a special ops warrior turned philanthropist named Damian Mander. This meeting reinforced my positive view of humanity's ability to evolve and to defeat the dark energies of violence and exploitation. Damian knows something about that silence. Having spent countless hours alone in the million-acre game preserves of South Africa and Mozambique. 
There he has run teams whose mission is to counter poachers who come from well-financed syndicates selling the poached elephant tusks and rhino horns for a fortune. The success of these teams and the unconventional way they are solving multiple interlocking challenges in VUCA situations solidified my belief that leaders and teams who embrace the seven commitments and further sign up for a bigger mission can make a huge difference in the world. Stop investing in violence. Damien, my friend, was first a clearance diver in the Royal Australian Navy. I worked with that exceptional team when I deployed to Australia way back in 93, well before Damien's time in the unit. The clearance divers did salvage diving, mine countermeasures, maritime tactical operations such as vessel boarding, and underwater explosive ordnance disposal. After 9-11, Damien put in a request to join the newly formed Tactical Assault Group, which had a mission similar to Deb Group. It was formed out of Australia's 2nd Commando Regiment. Now, I let him tell the story through our conversation, which was recorded at an earlier Unbeatable Mind podcast, which I'm going to summarize here. How many Navy guys were in the Tactical Assault Group, I asked Damien. He says, not many. We had a water troop made up of a very small team. After some time with them, I became a qualified Special Forces sniper. Can you tell me about your experiences transitioning from being a sniper in Iraq to coming back to the civilian world? So many get lost. How did you find meaning again? He said, yeah, Iraq's a tough one, eh? When you're there at ground level, it's hard to come up and see things from 30,000 feet. Interesting to hear of your mission with the Courage Foundation to help vets with post-traumatic stress to lower their risk of suicide. For a lot of us guys who served in Iraq, the real war doesn't start until the bullets stop, and you're trying to figure out your relevance in life. You come from a world where you mean everything to everyone around you, and then all of a sudden, when you come home, it feels like you're by yourself. There are no work postings for sniper in the local newspaper when you get back home. And I suppose a reflection of why we go to war in the first place and what that war is about is part of that return process. Anyways, it was tough. I suppose the thing that hit me hardest about Iraq was seeing what happened to the Iraqi people. It was just a country that was flattened, man. While there, I made a strong effort to learn Arabic and embed myself with the culture. That served me well. To learn their culture, you break bread with them. And when you're breaking bread, you become part of their family and their household. I didn't meet one person there that wasn't directly affected by the war. And when I say directly affected, I mean someone's kid who wasn't missing an arm from a bit of shrapnel or a wife who hadn't been killed or a grandmother had caught a stray bullet. And there were a handful of different wars going on over there. It was hard to know which bullets had whose name on them. I said, you know, I know war is such a tragedy, isn't it? It seems to be part of the human condition. But I don't subscribe to the belief that it'll always have to be that way. As more people evolve to what I call the fifth plateau world-centric perspective, the more culturally we will find war abhorrent. Interestingly, I heard an interview between Deepak Chopra and a yogi named Sadhguru recently. He was a very funny guy. A guest asked them both, quote, what would you guys do about the migration crisis from war-torn regions like Syria and Yemen? Would you be compassionate or would you take a more stern approach and prevent the migration from happening? End quote. Deepak said, of course, compassion. He gave kind of the answer one would expect. But Sadhguru just smiled and said, you know what? 
I would ask that we stop investing in conflict. Right on. Why not stop investing in conflict? Those people are getting their guns and bullets from somewhere. Why don't we stop making the military grade bullets, guns, and nukes and selling? Yes, it's more complicated than that, but could world-centric leaders and teams begin to think that way? I believe so. Anyways, I went off on a little tangent there, but this Navy SEAL and Damien the SAS sniper agree on that point. So, Damien, coming back from war, you felt lost and needed to find a purpose. That is what happens to a lot of guys and uh, ladies who are suffering from post-war stress experience. They lose their sense of purpose. But you found yours. Tell us how. Damien says, I didn't join the military to serve my country. I did it for adventure. And I didn't go to Iraq to help that situation either. I did it to make money. I left Iraq in 08 and went to South Africa to decompress. I suppose when I arrived in Africa, instead of looking for a cause, I was looking for a fight. I spent 11 months there doing far too many drugs and too much alcohol, and I hit rock bottom. I was at a crossroads. Then I heard about anti-poaching about a decade before. It was a topic of conversation there. Hey, I thought, that sounds like a bit of a romantic adventure and I could get myself into. And when I got into it, there were a couple things I experienced that changed my life. One was seeing park rangers who left their family behind for up to 11 months of the year to be out there doing something greater than serving oneself. I'd come from a world where we were defending resources in the ground and I had all the resources I needed. But these guys were defending the heart and lungs of the planet. They were in a hostile area where the biggest threat wasn't so much the poachers they were trying to stop, but the animals that they're trying to protect. And that really made me reflect on my life. It made me feel like shit, actually. There I was trying to have an adventure on the back of their hard work. The second thing was the animals themselves. In combat, it's a two-way street when the bullets are flying. But with these animals, it wasn't. It was just such an unjust act to kill those animals for the ivory or the sport of it. That affected me in a way that probably wouldn't have a decade before. Iraq had a way of breaking down my barriers and gave me a different lens to look at the world through. Animals don't want a car, a paycheck, or a bigger house. They don't have egos like us. Animals want one thing. They want to live. And we as a species continually take that away from them. So that was enough for me to say, screw it. I'd done all right through real estate and had a unique set of skills as a special operator So I sold everything and set up the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. That was almost a decade ago. It's now registered in four countries and operating throughout Southern and East Africa. The rangers we've trained and supported protect over 5 million acres of wilderness and the millions of animals of all different shapes and sizes that live there. I told him, that is amazing work, Damien. Help me understand the world of poaching. Why is it done? What are the economics of it? He told me, there are different types of poaching, Mark. The the most common is subsistence poaching, which is locals trying to put food on the table, genuinely. I don't have much of an issue with that. But then there is the commercial poaching. Commercial poaching is mainly for ivory from elephants and horn coming from rhinos. Those two animals are the most aggressively targeted species. The poachers can get $35,000 U.S. a pound for rhino horn on the black markets in China and Vietnam. And one rhino can easily have 20 or 30 pounds. These animals should be actually locked up in safes, 
not running around in areas the size of small countries. When we set the organization up, it was designed to be a surgical instrument to go to the front lines and protect these animals in their natural environments, run like a special ops mission. I said to him, so your concept initially was to send tactical teams out and counter poach by going after the poachers. Would you actually kill them or would you just try to round them up and have them arrested? Damien told me, well, of course you try to round them up, not only individually going after these guys. I say guys because it's mostly men doing the poaching, but we were training local forces there as well. Most of the job was making sure we had well-motivated, well-led teams in the field. The difference between success and failure in many of these operations is usually just one good commander who can pass on all the skills and, most importantly, spend time with them. We set out first to train rangers and run operations, and we grew as an organization. We learned a ton fast, and I applied a lot of what I took away from Iraq. It was constant evolution, cutting away what didn't work, keeping the bits that did, and pushing on, trying new things, not being afraid to make mistakes. We made some monumental screw-ups in those early years, but we were prepared to make them and to grow from them. I asked Damien, what impact did that first phase of your operation have? Did you have a way to measure it? Damien said, the biggest project we ran was on the border with the huge Kruger National Park in South Africa, home to a third of the world's rhino population. Most of those rhinos are in the southern quarter of the park. Kruger shares a border with Mozambique. In 2015, you had 80% of poaching was coming across that border from Mozambique into the heart of the biggest rhino population in the world. Amazingly, there are around 400 organizations specializing in rhino conservation in South Africa, but none were working on that piece of land that was up against South African border with Mozambique. The piece of land that separated most of the world's rhino and most of the world's poachers is the most critical piece of land on the planet for conservation. So we went in there and set up a ground offensive. We involved 165 personnel in four different governmental departments, built a bigger fence, brought in guns, helos, and planes, the whole shebang. It was essentially a ground-level insurgency that we were fighting against the local population. We were literally at war with the local population. But we stopped poachers coming through that area. Those were the international poachers going after the rhino horns, making significant amounts of money, driving brand new cars, and living high in the hog. This led, this effort led to the first downtown in rhino poaching globally in a decade. So that program was a success, but it was also a big failure because we were at war with the local community. They were all involved in supporting the poaching because they needed the money. It was like literally the same thing I saw in Iraq where the locals supported the insurgents because they were getting paid to and they needed to feed their families. Wow, I said to him. In one operation to stop one group of poachers wasn't going to change the basic underlying economic conditions that led to it to begin with, right? You have to address the underlying economic conditions. We sort of missed that in Iraq, too. Damien said, right. Not only that, but people's husbands and sons and uncles were coming home in body bags. There were over 400 people from those communities who were part of that poaching killed during those operations. G.I. Jane to the rescue. Though it drove a downturn in rhino poaching, I saw it was definitely not the answer. It made us start to think outside the box and look for something new. What we came up with 
will define the future of conservation and perhaps leadership itself as we know it. I mentioned that's the Akashinga program, right? Damon says, yep. We were reading a New York Times article about the first group of female U.S. Army Rangers to go through training. We thought that conservation is such a male-dominated industry with 100 to 1 men over women on the front lines. So I read more and more about how the empowerment of women is the single greatest force for positive change in the world today. I thought that if women don't get exposure at the ground level, they'll lack the experiences needed to rise up the ranks and fill management and senior positions. So instead of lamenting about not enough women leading things, we need to get them into the pipeline for leadership. So we set out to build a female anti-poaching unit, but we couldn't find a reserve that would accept them, even a trial run. They perceived it to be a huge risk. Finally, we found an abandoned trophy hunting reserve. Now, just to give some context here, trophy hunting is a dying industry. Trophy hunting is where people from overseas come over and shoot an elephant or a rhino for fun, for the trophy. I said, Facebook and social media activism is helping to kill that off, right? And Damien replied, yep, it is. Also, reduced wildlife populations and tougher laws and penalties around the import and export of trophies is helping. But there was this area the size of France in Africa that is set aside for trophy hunting. And in Zimbabwe, where I live, 20% of the landmass of that country is set aside for trophy hunting. Where trophy hunting was used as an economic model to fund anti-poaching in the past, as it dies off, the land that was set aside for trophy hunting will offer no protection from poachers. That's a sad irony, isn't it? As these areas are dying off, all the hunters that call themselves conservationists are moving on to the next area where there's something left to shoot. And people like us have to pick up the pieces. We did selection for 189 men in 2012, and at the end of day one, we only had three left, just three who were suitable to move on. I thought we'd see something similar with the women, but was stunned to see the results. We moved into that area in August of 2017 to set up the female ranger training, starting with 87 applicants. After our interview process, we had 36 start the actual selection training which was modeled on the special ops pillars of misery, cold, wet, tired, and hungry. At the end of 72 hours, only three had voluntarily dropped. We knew then that we had something unique. I believe that the distance one places between suffering and breaking is what defines the spirit of an individual. And it's that spirit that we needed. I can train the rest. I need spirit. I needed character. And these women had it in spades. My small team of former special operations instructors put these women through hell, and they impressed us at every turn. They went operational in October the following year. Now, previously, when we built an anti-poaching unit, we would recruit from around the country. Note that the local population has been pushed off the land to create the preserve to begin with, so there's already tension. And then you bring in this external ranger force not connected to the locals. They're not friends with them, not influenced by them, and they're not talking to them. Instead, we decided to recruit 100% from the local communities. That means that the conservation was now a community investment. And 62 cents from every dollar that we spend on the teams goes directly back into the local community. It doesn't go to the government or the big chief anymore, where it never trickled down anyways to the locals. 
I ask to clarify. You mean that the pay that these women get goes back into their local communities because they're going to spend it there? Damien said, right. Everything needed for their operations is also purchased from the local community. And the salary of these women is hitting the community at the household level, coming from the women. There's now more money going into those communities every 34 days than what trophy hunting provided in a year. Conservation money is now going into the hands of women. And research tells us that women spend three times more of their salary on family and local community needs than men do. So around 90% of what they earn, they invest back into their local community. Without planning this, our strategy took the conservation dollar and turned it into a community investment. And we put female empowerment at the top of the strategy. That gave the greatest bang for the buck for community development. And what was supposed to be the main thing, conservation, became a byproduct. And the program de-escalated everything. The men wanted to shoot the bad guys, but the women wanted to have a conversation to find out what their problems were and help fix the problems, not shoot at everything that moved. As we de-escalated, we had a less militarized approach, which is also a cheaper one. I added, like said guru advise, stop investing in more violence. Start investing in communities instead. Damien said, yep, it's completely shifted two decades of military law enforcement and conservation thinking for me. I added, you're still training those women how to shoot, move, and communicate though, right? I saw the picture of one of your trainees. She looked like a Navy SEAL sniper. So you're training them to do that, but their inclination isn't to lead with a weapon first, but with an open hand. Damon said, yes, we hope for the best, but are also prepared for the worst. These women are trained in all the tools and tactics they need. The lower Zambezi, one of the largest elephant populations left on the continent, had 8,000 elephants killed in the last 16 years. That's 8,000 teams of armed men moving through there. Teams who are willing and able to kill either rangers or the animals. And our women have to be prepared to meet up with them. The teams have made 62 arrests since October 2017. And that's dated, by the way. And these are not just lower-level arrests. They are from the syndicates. All of those arrests have been made without a shot being fired. It makes sense that the women form informal communication networks in these rural societies. That's a polite way of saying gossip. But they are really plugged into everything that's going on. And so most of the crimes are solved through coffee shop intelligence operations. And finally, the communities are finally on our side. It's much easier to take a phone call or text message from somebody in the local community telling you about where a problem is than it is to walk around a million acres looking for one. I asked Damien, what does the name Akashinga mean and how did it come about? He said, it's a name that the women came up with for themselves. It translates into, quote, the brave ones, end quote. I thought, well, if we're going to recruit these women, let's give the ones that are the most oppressed an opportunity. So the recruitment was open to victims of serious sexual assault, domestic violence, AIDS orphans, single wives, abandoned mothers, those types. And there have been no handouts on this course. They saw an opportunity and they made the most of it. I asked, how do you recruit? Do you put a poster up and say, hey, if you've been sexually assaulted, we want to talk to you? Can't imagine that working out. Damien said, by Bush Telegraph. These are very tight-knit communities. Everyone knows everyone's business. So we went and spoke with the chief and said, this is what we want to do. They were skeptical at first. This is perceived to be man's job in a male-dominated culture. But we managed to convince them. 
And they were very good in helping us open up that opportunity to the women. The second reserve started in Kenya the next year. And once we had it running and functioning and succeeding in a third reserve, then we'll make all the doctrine available for free to other organizations that meet our standards. While the West has helped drive a downturn in trophy hunting, we now need to look at alternatives to conservation by building communities that protect their own land. And from an economic standpoint, our programs appear to be an appealing alternative. I told Damien, I think empowering women to protect these areas, uplift their communities, support their families, and protect wildlife is a much more sellable market than trophy hunting. Damon said, you know what? When I sit down at the end of it all on the porch somewhere in my rocking chair, I just want to look back and to know that I helped play a part in building teams that were able to protect as much of the natural world as possible. We've got this amazing planet, this blue rock spinning through space, and we keep looking for miracles out there. When in actual fact, the miracles are all around us here in nature. And I think protecting it is a worthy mission. It's given me relevance, and it's giving the women relevance too. We need to give Mother Nature another chance. She will surprise us. I said, I couldn't agree more. You are protecting the environment and the animals and empowering women to be the protectors. Such a virtuous loop that you're creating. An intriguing model for other industries. Getting the ego-driven men to either transcend their ego or step aside and let women have a go at leading for once. Damien says, the ecosystems that balance our climate and make life on Earth possible are under extreme threat. Without sufficient action and along with humankind, we are destined to take millions of species to extinction. There's never been a more critical issue in civilization than the immediate protection of the natural world, in my opinion. And putting women at the center of conservation strategy is a simple yet innovative solution that can shift empowerment, development, and philanthropy across the continents. From what I have now learned, I believe that beyond Akashinga, the women will change the world for better. As we scale toward a legion of a thousand vegan women protecting Africa's ecosystem by 2025, I can't think of a more empowering program to drive this message. What excites me are the possibilities. We started the trial in a small landlocked country of sub-Saharan Africa in a conservation industry that was becoming increasingly antagonistic with local indigenous communities on a continent that has a 700% increase in armed conflict in the past decade. And all we did was shift the male roles to construction and labor and put women into the power roles of law enforcement, management, and decision-making. In doing so, we completely de-escalated local tensions and brought conservation and community together while cutting our operational costs by two-thirds. The remaining third, invested mostly in women, becomes the most effective form of community development, while our core business of conservation is more successful than ever. For so long, we've been blinded by our egos from seeing the most powerful force in nature, and that is a woman's instinct to protect. Where history is scarred with the battlefields of ego, women have remained the mothers, providers, and protectors of families. Binding society together, they bring stability to chaos. The hour of crisis has arrived. In seven centuries since Genghis Khan's men shook the world, it is now being shaken again for the better, only this time by a very different kind of force, a special one, the women leaders. Huyad Damon, thank you for your vision. The fate of humanity depends on you. Now, what does it mean to be a human being now?
as we race into this era of AI, robots, mass distraction, and growing existential threats? Like Damien, how do we find greater purpose, relevance, and a more significant mission in a world that's gone somewhat mad? Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, claims that we're no longer as a species capable of dealing with the threats that we have created. Nuclear war, ecological collapse, and technological disruption threatened to potentially even erase humanity. Yuval posits that these threats are problems that can be solved only by a global civilization, which we do not have. We're separated by national, cultural, and religious idealism and driven by rigid, egocentric, and ethnocentric worldviews. What we're doing doesn't seem to be working and could be a recipe for more suffering in the future. But how do we come together to end this separation? Many expected that the internet and the global mobile access would usher in a global community. Seems that that promise has faded. Can new technologies such as blockchain, space exploration, and green energy solve the problems? Technology will undoubtedly extend life, colonize planets, maybe even end poverty, and perhaps begin to heal the planet. Yet, it will also give us even more powerful tools to destroy ourselves. So as a species separated from our own true nature, and thus from each other, we'll continue to use these increasingly powerful weapons against, quote, the others, end quote. We will continue to act in our own self-interest in spite of the negative global consequences of our actions. Separation from our own true nature is what has always pitted us against one another in an endless fight for resources, territory, and power. Isolation, racial and sexual judgment, absolutist thinking, despotic and radical behavior all come from separation. Separation creates fear, greed, gluttony, depression, sadness, anxiety, anger, and confusion. In a nutshell, separation causes suffering, which is played out culturally on the worldwide stage. Everyone is desperately seeking answers outside of them in the next new leader, in academia, or in the media hype, or the latest self-help course. Yet they never find what they're looking for. There is no formal education on how to end separation and eliminate suffering. So everyone bounces from one drama to another, repeating deeply grooved religious, social, and family myths along the way. To end separation from others, we must first end it in ourselves. We must stare down the fear wolf, wake up to our innate goodness and connection to one another, and reach that integrated fifth plateau of development I've talked about in this book. So yeah, the fate of humanity does depend upon you and me. The way to global wholeness is first to become whole ourselves. This book is my way of motivating you to reframe your role as a leader and teammate for the future, which is now. That role is to develop agile and vertically developing teams and organizations that will lead the way for social and environmental reform. Embodying the change as a leader of leaders on one team of teams with one common mission to win back our future. The industrial age bureaucracies and conglomerates, though well-intentioned in most cases, have lost the right to lead in this new era. And the media will continue to obsess about the shadow side of culture and politics, fostering social confusion and unrest. 
That leaves you and me to move the dial in a positive, world-centric direction. Within the next 20 years, we will most likely be an interplanetary species with an outpost on the moon and Mars. How will we serve as stewards of our home planet in the shift to an interplanetary species? Do we do things the same way and pray for more positive results? Do we wait for a few brilliant entrepreneurs to solve things? Personally, I don't think either of these approaches will work. What I think is that you and I need to expand our potential and our concept of what we're capable of. Then we need to bring that expanding power to our teams and our organization. It's the only way to not get blown over like the mighty oak in the coming technological tsunami. The accelerating technological advancements will soon make our planet feel very small. As a result of the work that you and I will do, I have a vision that we will reach a tipping point in the next 10 to 20 years where over 10% of humanity will identify themselves at both as a member of their tribe and simultaneously as a citizen of the human race. That means they will demand equal rights, freedoms, and respectability for all. They will also demand the country stop investing in violence. I see the breathing and meditation and visualization methods discussed in this book and in some of my other work as being commonly taught in grade school. And I see humanity moving rapidly in a more positive direction as a result. There is simply no future that makes sense with a continuing threat of nuclear, economic, or environmental annihilation. The days of scarcity thinking and my tribe is better than your tribe thinking needs to end. Only when enough teams and leaders share the truths of the seven commitments of this book can we take over the dominant leadership roles and bully pulpits. Then together we can transform cultural and social structures to rebalance the collective body, mind, and spirit of humanity, as well as our home base, the earth. So it's your time to step into your role as a change agent, leading a bigger mission by example. You will make the biggest impact through your elite teams, embracing the seven commitments. The team is your vehicle to change, where you will lead with an open heart and hand, like the Akashinga women. Minds and hearts merge in bold action that goes beyond the bottom line, but doesn't ignore that bottom line. So let's stare down the wolf of fear together and fight for our communities, planet Earth itself, and all of humanity. Take a sober look at the version of the future where you and I take no action. To me, it's not pretty. So let's commit to co-creating that alternative, positive, or probable future. Only by taking back our personal power can we stare down the negative forces that dominate today. It's time for us to step into the breach. Finally, there is a growing expectation from our youngest generations that the organizations that they join or create will be part of the solution, not perpetuate the problems of the past. We need to give our young teammates something to mobilize around. Ask how your team and organization is going to make a difference beyond just making a profit. Commit to developing courage, trust, respect, growth, excellence, resiliency, and alignment to unlock massive potential. Together, we can do this. One team, one fight. We've got this. Easy day. Stare down that friggin' wolf. Fear holds us back. You can step into your moral and physical courage by taking on that first commitment. Stare down your fears and simultaneously fuel courage. This will propel you naturally 
to take on the other six commitments. Courage develops from taking a stand and risking bold action. In fact, each of the seven commitments is a call to action, building upon each other. Without courage, you won't trust. If you don't trust, you won't get respect and won't respect others. If you don't respect yourself and others, then you won't grow. If you're not growing, then you won't express excellence. And if you don't commit to excellence, you won't be very resilient. Finally, if you're not resilient, then your team will have difficulty aligning with your vision or mission. Staring down the wolf requires daily work to evolve your body, mind, and spirit. Embrace the suck of that work, get comfortable with discomfort, and learn to appreciate the accelerated growth that will come from it. On your journey, remember these three things. One, self-mastery is an everyday practice. We must take ownership of our own evolution. This will stoke your courage and breathe fire into your other commitments. Two, this is not just about you. Every time you do the work, you're impacting your team and humanity positively. Check your ego and do this for the team. And three, you must discover your unique calling and serve from that place. Humanity needs your unique skills and world-centered care. These commitments then are daily practices as well as powerful guiding principles to live by. Let's review the core practices again and the principles of each commitment. Courage. When it comes to courage, the principles stand up for truth, both universal truth as well as your own truth. A key universal truth to stand for is inclusiveness and interconnectedness. If we are to be world-centric, we cannot deny, demonize, or judge other people's realities. We cannot be self-righteous. We have to let go of judgment and self-righteousness to be inclusive and respect the worthiness of others. We also need to have the courage to follow our calling and not do things because other people think they're right or because our parents wanted us to do them or whatever the case may be. To be courageous means that we won't work for assholes and we won't do things that feed only our ego-oriented goals, as I did with the Coronado Brewing Company. I went into that Coronado Brewing Company with the goals of making a ton of money and having free beer for life. Look how that turned out. It was not a very courageous act. Courage requires that we practice expanding our risk tolerance and leading with the heart, as Olson demonstrated. In order to do that, we have to train the heart. One of the best ways I know to do that is to force yourself to have those crucial, critical conversations every day. We all have those that we know we should do, but we avoid them until they go away. But they never really go away, do they? You can develop the courage to have those critical conversations just by committing to one a day. Doing so will train your open heart to open up to others in mutual connectedness. You'll also be expanding your capacity for risk and sharing an important experience, which will develop greater trust and respect. These commitments all tie together like that. Trust. The main principle with trust is that when you commit to trust, you commit first to becoming trustworthy yourself. That means you must develop transparency, humility, and the discipline to relentlessly follow through the way McCraven did. Don't hide behind inaction or blame others or the situation when things don't go as planned. Doubt is eliminated through action and learning, but first and most important comes action. One of the most powerful actions to cultivate trust is to admit your mistakes. Hiding behind my mistakes in arena adventures led to a serious breach in my trustworthiness, which broke down the trust of the team. Own your mistakes day in and day out. Don't just acknowledge them to yourself, but declare them loudly and humbly to the team. Say, hey folks, I screwed this up. 
Clearly, I'm not perfect. I hope it doesn't impact us too bad. I need your help fixing things up. Sounds so simple, but it can be so hard to say the first few times. We were taught that messing up is bad. That's bullshit. It's how we learn together. You want to quickly get to the heart of authenticity? Well, tell everyone when you screw up. Then go on to say that you're working on fixing things and improving. Everyone will start to trust you quickly when you do this. Respect. The principle of respect starts with getting really clear as to your why and your real mission. Clarify your specific and implied objectives and what acceptable victory and failure looks like. Then communicate these with disciplined integrity and a moral compass. No plan will survive VUCA. So to navigate it intact, you have to be clear about why you're doing what you're doing at each step of the way. Otherwise, you'll lose respect quickly. Communicate to the team that ultimate victory won't look anything like what you originally thought, and that's okay. It's how the team responds to the challenges and changes, and how adaptable the team members are that will determine success. In the SEALs, an acceptable victory was also that we learned how not to do something in the future. We didn't always have to get the mission done as prescribed, which gave us a ton of flexibility to keep driving forward. You have to earn your respect every single day, and you do that with communication steeped in integrity, as I saw with Captain O'Connell. That means removing your mask and speaking with the three-part intention that I introduce in the book. And that is what you say is factually true, that it is helpful and adds to the conversation, and that it comes from a place of positivity. As far as those masks are concerned, if you wear them, you lose respect because the team will see through them immediately. The most important mask to shed is the mask of perfection, which is born from fear. I outsourced NavySeals.com in its early days due to my own masking of fear. I didn't trust my own competency and feared that I couldn't do it by myself, that I needed those people to fill that gap. That codependence came from my childhood sense of not feeling worthy. When I gained the self-awareness and courage to stare it down, it went away. If I had done that emotional work and shed that mask earlier in my life, I could have saved a ton of time, money, and suffering. I also lacked the integrity of the three-part communication to get through it gracefully, and the whole thing was a disaster. I lost respect for them, and they lost respect for me. Respect is gained slowly, but lost quickly. Face every opportunity to drop the mask. Do this every day, and respect will be impossible to deny. Growth. The principle of growth goes beyond vanilla personal development. This commitment is about embracing vertical character development for both you and your team. Practicing the seven commitments with your team will create an engine for unbelievable growth. You need to become the person worthy of guiding your team as a world-centric leader, like the Hora became through his own commitment to growth. Why would you give up 8 to 10 hours of your day or more for many of you and not demand that the time provide a major opportunity of growth for you? You'll want to systematize challenge and variety and find more mentors, not just one, but a team of mentors or coaches. Also, be a mentor or coach to others. As we discussed in Chapter 5 on growth, there are organizations that are teams of mentors who can support you. I've been part of more than one. Everyone needs a mentor and in more than one category. You'll need one for your physical development, your mental development, your business and entrepreneurial needs, your emotional development, even your spiritual development. 
it's quite difficult to find all that support in one single person. When I look back and compare my peace of mind and the results I was getting when I was committed to growth and had mentors to my peace of mind and results when I wasn't, the difference is glaring. I slid off the rails quickly when I was distracted by all the doing, ignoring the work on my being. For example, I ended up with Coronado Brewing Company, with Arena Adventures, and the early NavySeals.com debacles, all because I had paused my inner work. After my combat tour with the SEALs, I recommitted to never prioritizing achievement over growth. I took this even further when I discovered that teaching these principles was my calling. It's better to seek peace of mind than glory. When I started SEALFIT, I made the daily integrated training of physical, mental, emotional, intuitive, and spiritual aspects part of the training model, and I led that training by example. I got back into the martial arts, back into meditation and yoga, and committed to practicing every day, rain or shine, for at least an hour. Everything changed for the better. If you commit to daily growth, you'll make great strides and quickly. The challenges won't go away, but you'll have new perspectives and resiliency and will respond positively. The minute you stop training, the well-worn negative patterns will reappear again. The fear wolf does not leave your head. He's just going to lie there and wait for an opportunity to be noticed again. So commit to growth by training daily in these commitments, doing hard every day, changing it up frequently. Keep things fresh so you never get too comfortable. Excellence. The main principle of excellence is that you first seek to develop curiosity, innovation, and simplicity outside yourself. Then you're looking in the wrong place. Excellence is first found on the inside and then express through your character and your actions. This requires that you embrace silence and the practices that cultivate simplicity, curiosity, and innovation. Thus, excellence is also not so much a way of acting as a way of being. The team also needs to take time to come together and train, inside and outside the office. Start to do these things together to get comfortable with discomfort. Plan periodic retreats and time off to reflect, restore, and deepen insight and gain important new perspectives. Embody excellence first, and then transmit it through your actions. When you commit to excellence by embracing the practices as daily needs rather than as concepts, you and your team become your own SEAL Team 6. Develop your character to be morally courageous, trustworthy, and respectable first, then go accomplish your mission with excellence. Your basic training is to carve out 15 to 30 minutes each morning, During this time, do 5 to 10 minutes of deep diaphragmatic box breathing, followed by 5 to 10 minutes of mindfulness, finished by journaling patterns and ideas that come up. This is a simple yet transformative practice. Resiliency. Fall down seven times, get up eight, but stronger and with a smile on your face. It's often said that we need to adapt and overcome, but I suggest that we overcome and then adapt. Overcome the obstacles first, then learn to adapt from the experience to be more resilient and wiser. Embody accelerated learning so you can run toward the sound of gunfire, that is, toward the challenges. Learn how to learn well, how things work and don't work. Acknowledge that you're capable of at least 20 times more than you think you are, then go out and prove it. Expect obstacles, then persistently blow them up one at a time, employing crisis leadership, the OODA loop, and the other tools discussed in the book. A mantra I often use is, quote, day by day in every way, I'm getting stronger and better, 
Kuyahe, end quote. Kuya is the seal warrior shout that brings the team together in the spirit of, we've got this, no problem, easy day. This and my other mantras keep me positive and optimistic and help me cultivate resiliency. Don't be afraid to be a white belt again. Empty your cup to allow for new ideas and energy to flow in. Be willing to show up every day with a fresh start and a beginner's mind. Alignment, the final principle. The final principle of alignment is to share everything worth sharing. Open yourself to sharing exposure to risk, reward, and the experience of the whole team. Get out of the box, out of the office, and out of your head. Be authentic by getting into your own heart and in the hearts of your team. Ask what's going well, what's not working, and what you can do to help. Get involved in cross-functional teams, task force, or think tanks. Risk not being the expert and then become one. Ask to lead things that scare you. If you're the leader, share your vision and expectations and get relentless with your battle comms to get everyone in sync with the mission. Everyone's got a unique skill. Don't hide yours or squash others. And when it's an all-hands-on-deck moment, be willing to pick up a hammer or take out the trash. There's nothing worse than a specialist who holds back thinking, that's not my job. Commit to developing the team's shared sense of meeting, like McChrystal did with his team of teams. Develop a deeply meaningful morning ritual, one that will allow you to win in your mind before you start the day, both as an individual and a team. Learn from your mistakes and eradicate regrets in your evening ritual. Live life one day, one life at a time. So you see how courage begets trust, trust begets respect, respect leads to growth, growth leads to excellence, excellence forges resiliency, and resiliency gives you the stick-to-itiveness and the power to constantly align with your team. In that way, together, we can radically focus on the who and the why as well as the what and the how of our missions. This is how teams grow together and how you grow to be a leader worthy of their support. Who you are as a teammate, who the team is as a whole, and why we all do what we do are paramount. Figure out your collective why and how you want to be together as a team. Then determine how you will change the world together. Together, as one team, we'll win this fight. So stare down that wolf. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate your support and for listening. And I'll see you next time on the Unbuild Mind Podcast. Hoo-yah. Divine out. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen. 